Hello, my name is James Cohen, and I am an associate professor of ESL and bilingual education at Northern Illinois University. I am honored today to have the opportunity to speak with Sandy Lopez, the NIU coordinator for undocumented student support, as well as a panel of three NIU students who are undocumented. We are going to do things a little differently today. Instead of simply having one of the social justice camp counselors, Mike, Joe, or I, conduct the interview, I will first be asking a few questions to Sandy, and then Sandy and I both will be interviewing the students on the panel. For the past several years, I have invited Sandy and a panel of students to come into my classes and tell their stories. My students have always benefited greatly from this experience, opening their eyes to the realities of people with undocumented status. And I wanted to share this reality with the listeners of this podcast, who either do not have the opportunity to sit in my classes or have not had the experience of directly learning about a reality that is characterized with a tremendous amount of misinformation and villainization. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Sandy Lopez, Laura, Manny, and Dulce. Welcome to all of you. Thank you, James. Thanks for having us today. Um, again, my name is Sandy Lopez. I'm the coordinator for undocumented student support at NIU, and my office is new as of 2018. Um, my office aims to engage and support undocumented students and students from mixed status families, as well as their allies at NIU. Um, my job is there to support, uh, serve as a primary point of contact for the coordination of all support, advocacy, programming assistance, referrals, any needs that our students would have to make sure that we are giving them um, the opportunity for educational equity and for success at NIU. And usually when James invites me into his class, we begin the session, we be begin the training with the importance of terminology. And one of the words I always discuss is dropping the word, the I word, and that I word meaning illegal. We do not use that word when we go and when we try to talk about a person or describe a person. A human being is not illegal. An action is. This term is derogatory, it's dehumanizing, and quite honestly, it cri it's criminalizing. So as you as administrators, as educators who are interacting with undocumented youth or family members or community members, if you use this word, it immediately puts up a, a, you know, a guard for the immigrant family or those students. They become uneasy when they hear that word because they're not sure if they can trust you. Um, again, the word illegal for an action, not a human being. Some other terminology that we talk about is who is undocumented. So undocumented person is someone who resides in the U.S. without permission from the federal government. It could be someone who enters um, without inspection. Oftentimes people assume or, or think of that, that method as crossing the border, entering without inspection. What, one thing most people don't realize is that 60% of the close to 12 million undocumented immigrants in this country actually entered with permission. They come in with a, with a visa. Now, there are 15 different types of visas and five different categories from humanitarian, tourist, academic, employment. That's a whole other podcast within itself. But I just like to share that there are different types of visas. And the majority of the immigrants in this country, the undocumented immigrants in this country actually did come in with visas. For some reason or another, their visas expire and they become visa overstayers and then become undocumented. Other terminology to think about is the term dreamers. Oftentimes you hear the term dreamer. 
Um, that word is a very politi political word that's used by politicians to showcase a certain group of students, showing students who are upper echelon students. Our students at NIU tend to, to refrain from using that term dreamer when talking about themselves because not all students, not all undocumented youth or not all immigrants are considered dreamers. And it can be sometimes used as a divisive word, as a worthy immigrant and an unworthy immigrant. So um, the term we like to use is undocumented when speaking about our students. Another term you may hear is documented, and that term is for someone who has deferred action for childhood arrivals. And then finally, mixed status family. It refers to a student or a family, um, to someone who is from a family who has a US citizen and maybe someone who is not a citizen, hence mixed status in one family. So those are terms that we use from time to time when we're talking about undocumented students family members or communities or immigrants in general. I also think it's important, James, to share the demographics. There are um, close to 12 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, but important for educators to note that 98,000 undocumented youth are graduating from, are graduating from high school. Um, 98,000 are graduating from high school every year. Sadly, that same number is not matriculating to, to college. There are right now 120,000 undocumented youth who are reaching high school age, and only 5 to 10% of them will attend college. So of that 98,000, only 5 to 10% will attend college. And more likely than not, they'll start at a community college. I also just want to share a little bit about demographics. Oftentimes, people assume being undocumented means being from a Latin American country or being Latino or Latina. And quite honestly, oftentimes it's just equated with being Mexican. And so it's really important to note that we have a lot of immigrants in our communities that are from other countries and a lot of undocumented youth um, that are coming from, from other countries, um, from Asia, from Africa, from European countries. Um, and what happens is if we are just supporting Latinx undocumented youth, we're leaving out, we're erasing so many others that may need our help. Keep in mind, Illinois has roughly 511,000 undocumented immigrants um, and approximately 8% of Illinois undocumented population have attended college but haven't earned a degree yet. So it's very important for us as educators to think of all of the undocumented students, not just some. And can, you, can you talk a little bit also about in regards to uh, school counselors, what they can be advising students who have yes. documented status? Because right now, yes. a lot of them are saying you can't go to college, but right. that, that's not true. Right, and there are laws that are in Illinois that allow our undocumented students to receive in-state tuition. And more recently in Illinois, we passed the ability for students who have gone to high school in Illinois and graduate um, from Illinois or have a GED to actually apply for um, MAP funding. So there's the RISE Act, it's the alternative form for the FAFSA. We do not encourage our undocumented students to fill out the FAFSA. We tell them to apply to the RISE Act alternative application, and that gives them the opportunity to receive funding. In addition, with the RISE Act passing, now universities can um, provide institutional aid to undocumented students. So all the merit funding, all the scholarship opportunities are now available to undocumented students. And one, um, one scholarship I'm particularly proud of is called the Husky Pledge. Here at NIU, if you are a freshman entering with a 3.0 GPA and your family makes below $75,000, you, um, you can receive funding up to four years 
that would meet your gap between what MAP can give you and what you have to pay for fees and tuition. That would be all four years if you can keep maintain that 3.0. So um, I'm always proud of the work we have done and what we do here at NIU. But I have to say also, James, that everything that has been done here at NIU and the progress that has been made is because it has started by students. The, the student group Dream Action NIU in 2009 started advocating. It was formed then, and they have brought about change on a campus that is, in my opinion, unprecedented. They have done so much to advocate both at the university, within the state of Illinois, at the federal level as well. And so a lot of the progress that you see, a lot of the opportunities that we have here are for students, by students. So please, if you're a high school counselor, if you're an educator and you don't think that your students can go to COD because they're undocumented, I'm here to tell you they can. And there's a panel of students here to tell you not only can they, but they can succeed. And um, I can't wait for you to hear more about their stories, but please do not. If you're uncertain, it's one thing that we, we sometimes as educators, we don't know how to advise because we don't have the answers. I think the biggest thing we can do as educators is say, you know what, I don't have the answer, but let me find someone who can find that answer for you. And that usually could, that could be me. So I will definitely leave my contact information at the end. And I encourage you to reach out to NIU and other institutions that have support people like myself in place. I also, before I, I pass it on to the students, I want to share a little bit about educational obstacles. Our students it's very important that our admissions process at, at high schools or even colleges, right, as we're working with students to transition, that we make sure that the admissions process is easy and that the counselors are competent in working with undocumented students. Keep in mind, 57% of the undocumented population lives below the federal poverty line, and paying for college is almost, it doesn't seem possible, but it is, okay? It, it definitely is possible. One of the ways that we can do that is to offer scholarship resources and opportunities, as well as encourage our students to perhaps, I hate to say this, but don't live in the dorms. If you're going to go away to college, we have to find an alternative for our students or some type of housing scholarship, because $11,000 to live in a residence hall is a, is a deficit that they'll never, they have a hard time recovering from. It's too much money to put towards room and board when they could possibly get um, an apartment or share a room with a friend. Uh, so that's a definitely an educational challenge. Other challenges we went, run into are background checks and certifications. Um, it has gotten easier because now we do, uh, we do a lot of background checks with biometrics. And then um, the licensure and state certifications, there was a bill passed. Um, that allows not just our, you know, our DACA students can sit for any type of licensures or, or certifications with their social security numbers, but our undocumented youth can now sit through those certifications with their what's called an ITIN number, a tax, individual tax identification number. And then the final um, obstacle I think our students will often face is research opportunities. A lot of them are federally funded, and we have a lot of students going into the STEM fields. Make sure that you offer students research opportunities that are privately funded so that our undocumented students can continue with their research in their prospective areas of study. Also, it's oftentimes, um, you know, educators that are there to help, but students may find it difficult to trust school officials. They might hesitate to get involved or may get discouraged to continue their education. Make sure that you're reaching out to those students and offering them opportunities and ways to engage and serve and resources. Um, they may not always come out and tell you their status, but if they do, their status that they share is for you and you alone to have. Please don't share student status or out them 
but just make sure to acknowledge that undocumented students have a right to be enrolled in your schools and in, in universities and become informed about laws and, and policies that affect undocumented students to create a climate of trust that allows students to reveal their situation at their own pace and hopefully your district will have opportunities to support them. Well, thank you, Sandy, so much. That was really informative. Uh, so now what we would like to do is introduce the student panel. So would all of you like to, um, well, Sandy, this is your job usually in, in my class. <laughs> sure. So go ahead, so, why don't you take over. <laughs> so today I have um, today I have three students from, from NIU and they're in different uh, phases of, of their educational journey. So I'm gonna have the students introducing themselves uh, just, as, as you introduce yourself, can you share your name? You can share your first name and then um, your area of study and if you, if you can, um, your migration story. So let's go ahead and I'll start with uh, Laura. <laughs> Hi everyone, my name is Laura. Um, I am a rising 3L, so I'm in law school. And um, my migration story is I came from Puebla um, from La, from Tronconal, that's actually, a, I don't know if you can see the picture, that's Puebla right there. Um, like, as you can see, uh, it's a lot of, uh, it's a farm, like, it's, um, it's a farmland behind me. Um, a lot of my family um, are campesinos, or, you know, they make a living growing food. Um, my, I have uncles who do that. Um, my grandfather actually, my grandparents still do that also. Um, that's generally been how my family made income in Mexico. Um, however, my parents both graduated with um, an elementary school education, so they didn't further their education in Mexico. So the opportunities were limited for them. And with the economic recessions of the 80s. Um, a lot of the men in my family and the women had no had no other choice except to migrate to the United States for economic purposes so they could find work, employment to support their families back home. My father immigrated first um, to the United States. Um, he found work um, in restaurants and factories and eventually he sent for me and my mom um, my mom and I were stayed behind um, before he went um, to the United States. Um, my mom gave birth to me um, in Mexico, and three months after that, uh, she decided to come to the United States to follow my dad. Um, I actually don't know if it was like a mutual decision or you know if my father just like you know you have to come over here, but I, I assume it's like you know family. Um, it was like a family unification purpose. Um, so my mom, the way she tells the story um, is that, you know, it was just a car ride across the border. And I, she says she took a plane from, you know, the border to Chicago. And we've been here ever since then. Thank you, Laura. Dulce, can you share? Uh, well, I just shared your name. <laughs> Can you share your name and then uh, a little bit about what, what you're studying and your migration story, if you remember it? Yeah, uh, my name is Dulce. I'm a sociology major. Um, I came to the United States when I was six years old from Mexico City. Um, I remember it just being my mom, my dad, 
And it was just the three of us who um, crossed the border, like actually walking. And I've been here ever since. Um, my parents didn't get a college education back in Mexico. Uh, so when we came here, and even like just planning coming to the U.S., what they said to me a lot was that we were coming here so we could have a better life and so that I could have a better education. And here I am. I'm supposed to graduate in December. Excellent. Congratulations. Uh, Mandy, can you share a little bit about uh, you know, what you're studying and your migration story? 100%. So um, as you just stated, my name is Manny, also known as Manuel. Um, I am 21 years old, and I actually just transferred over to Northern uh, this past year. Um, so I, that was a whole process in itself. Um, my migration story kind of uh, loops back to when I was still eight years old, living in Durango, Durango, Mexico. So it was a while ago, 13 years ago, roughly, give or take. Um, and at that point in our lives, uh, me and my family were kind of already sad. We had our own thing going, uh, but just as uh, everybody else, once you kind of uh, start to get a little preview or a little sneak peek as to what everything is to offer here and what uh, the American dream actually consists of in reality. Um, it really gets us thinking and it got us thinking. So me and my family um, living in Mexico, we all took to ourselves and we started talking, you know, sharing opinions, sharing everything that we could. Um, and eventually ended up making the choice that we would indeed make the make the leap of faith, if you will, to uh, come over and uh, try to chase the American dream. And now, uh, 13 years later, after my dad first came, he was the first one to come over and kind of lay down some groundwork and some roots for us to come over. Um, so once he did, we uh, came over here as smoothly as I would probably have imagined it to go. Um, and 13 years later, we are here in the middle of quarantine, still trying to chase the same American dream. So that's a little bit of my mind migration. The American dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll start. Let's go back to, to Lauda. Can you share a little bit about um, when you learned you were undocumented and how that has affected your educational journey? Um, I learned that I was undocumented or learned how it, we, it would impact me when I applied or I was nominated or encouraged to apply for um, the Youth Leadership Academy. Uh, the Youth Leadership Academy is a program that was created um, to help low-income students uh, go to college to, you know, because education can be, can offer social mobility for, you know, children who come from low-income areas. Um, so I applied. I, I remember I had the application and I filled everything out and I sent, I got the letters of recommendations I needed from two, from two teachers from middle school. And I actually got interviewed at Elgin Community College. I remember that day distinctly because uh, we had, I've never been to a college before, but also, and even though it was in Elgin, my mom and I had never been there before for any reason. So this was my first time there. And I did everything I had to, and then I was waiting for, like, a letter to say, like, you've been accepted or, you know, you've been denied. But it was in that summer after, um, I think it was either sixth or seventh, it was sixth grade, um, I waited for the letter, and the letter never came. And it wasn't until um, one day during the summer, um, I overheard my mom talking with an aunt saying that I had 
applied to this program, but unfortunately I didn't get in because I lacked a social security number. And that was one of the, f- the first points in my life where I realized that not having a social security number or papers would stop me from taking advantage of opportunities that I would otherwise, you know, be qualified for. And that really uh, stuck with me because uh, it it opened my eyes, right, as a sixth grader that, you know, things are going to make I look like they're going to be harder for me, but I still want to go to college. I still want to go to that campus that I visited um, to do my interview. Um, I read all the materials and I was like, yes, going to college sounds like something I need to do because the circumstances of my childhood, you know, coming from an immigrant family, moving from apartment to apartment, not having a home, not having enough like money. Uh, I really noticed that and observed that as a child. So going to college was something I really wanted to do, um, even if it was going to be harder. Um, I didn't know like everything that all the challenges that as a sixth grader that would come along. But that was just like the beginning of figuring that out. Thank you. Dulce, can you talk a little bit about when you first learned you were um undocumented and how that uh, how your status has affected your educational journey yeah so I think I always knew I always knew that I didn't have this piece of paper that made me like everyone else like my peers Um, but I didn't know what that would mean for me until my senior year of high school like the very beginning where everyone was talking about where they were gonna go where they were applying or where they had applied. Um, And I would just look at numbers. I remember looking up just how much tuition was at these different colleges. And back then, I wanted to go to a private school. So it was like $45,000 a year. You know, that's basically what my parents make a year. Like I knew that I couldn't afford that. And I knew I couldn't apply to FAFSA because of all these workshops that were being offered at school. I knew that I didn't have a social, so I couldn't, I couldn't apply to this. And even the information that was giving out at school regarding applying to college, it wasn't applying to me. Um, I would just sit there and, you know, I knew what I could, what I, I, I could take in and it would apply to me and what, I, you know, the rest just wasn't for me. And I remember just feeling really frustrated and because my parents didn't know what this process was like. I, I had no, nobody else. So I decided to come out to my uh, counselor at school so she could, I, if, I, if she could offer some help. And I did. I, I told her that I really wanted to go to college. My parents wanted me to go to college, but I just didn't know where to go, what would be affordable, what I could do. And the only thing she could do, and I think it's not her fault. I don't think it's her fault. It's just maybe she didn't have the information. Uh, she gave me a link to a website. I can't remember what the website was, but it was just resources for undocumented students. And it was helpful, but it was also overwhelming. Uh, navigating that website, there was so much information, so many scholarships. And it was, it kind of had to be self-taught. So it, it was a really lonely time for me. 
Mm. But yeah, I think that's when I, I knew what it meant to be undocumented, I guess, for me. Okay. Manny? Okay, so um, for me, um, uh, coming to learn that I was undocumented here kind of came a little different, but uh, in so many ways, uh, very similar. Um, having been born in, uh, Mexico, uh, and being, uh, raised there for eight years and especially in the school system, um, seeing how it deferred, uh, being here, I feel like that made the realization for me come a lot easier because just simply trying to, um, compare and contrast both different scenarios, both academic systems. I started to get to see him from a very young age too, which I very I, I find myself lucky to have this opportunity that I got to see um, how it would, it would defer at a very young age. So uh, having done so, I kind of got to see, experience, um, and just basically learn from all the different opinions, all the different perspectives that there is in an academic system, which is where I've always lived in. So. Um, having been raised um, in an academic system, I kind of got to see um, the group of people that I uh, kind of fit in with the demographic that I was supposed to follow, the certain um, things that I was or wasn't supposed to do. So um, having come to the realization of being undocumented is a little bit easier said than done because in the back of our minds, we all already realize it's just a matter of when that thing actually decides to click in your head. Um, and for me, it compares a lot to Laura's and Dulce's because that came to me around um, already deep enough into the academic career, which was like around high school, given like a junior, uh, senior type of standing where uh, I'm trying to look for a job. Um, and then there's the social security section where it's like, okay, like now what? Um, and that just started raising up a bunch of questions for me because all I wanted to do as a junior in high school, I wanted to make some money, start making moves for my own better future but um what was stopping me and then that just led to a whole bunch of questions for me where it was like this is probably how it's going to be and now this is actually in action where i'm uh, i'm gonna have to be taking more um significant steps that I most would uh usually have to in order to get the same outcome um which then kind of uh piggybacks me into the next question which is how my status has affected my educational journey um, and my answer to that is that it has affected it greatly um, in the sense that that academic journey that I've been given is um, not the same that many people will ever get to experience. Um, for example, not being eligible for certain things, um, having to take a couple extra steps for the same outcome as I just stated, and just being looked at as the one that doesn't belong. Um, so I definitely got dealt a different hand than most which means I definitely got to see and experience things in a different way. But also as a result, I also got to learn from those things. And now I get to use them in ways that many people will not understand. So um, in the greatest, biggest picture that I can put, that is how uh, I learned I was undocumented, how my status uh, has and still is affecting my academic journey to this day. Okay. So um, I also want to ask, you know, keep in mind, we're, we're speaking today to educators and administrators. And so what kind of advice would you have? Think about your own educational experience and where you hit, you know, op uh, road bumps or obstacles and where things weren't easy. Um, try to, to picture, you know, you're, you're giving advice to maybe someone in your, your former school, you know, or someone who, who may be helping other, other youth right now. 
if you want to go ahead and start, any of you can go ahead. And, I guess I'll start with Lauda. We'll keep it in the same pattern. Um, advice you want to give to educators, administrators, or counselors? Yeah. Uh, so I'll repeat the same piece of advice because I got asked this right when I started at community college. Um, so after high school, I went to my local community college, Elgin Community College, and um, I had gotten there and I had gotten a bunch of scholarships because I had really worked my senior year to apply as many as I could. And I, and I was able to get like a trustee scholarship. So that meant that I didn't pay anything my first semester, but I had to figure out a pay, way to pay for the books. So as I figured that out, but it was my, but I was also noticing that I wasn't prepared for college, I think. Like I, I had done some work in high school, but I wasn't ready. Um, but I was getting involved, you know, on campus and getting involved with student life. And I was especially more shy um, right after high school. Um, and we, to kind of like get out of my, to push my, my, com my level of uh, comfort, I actually went on, we went to, I went with high, to high, local high schools with my local organization of Latin American students. And uh, we went to South Elgin High School, and we were there with a bunch of kids that looked like us. So Latino kids, you know, students of color, and we were talking about college and essentially encouraging them to go to college. And, and I had mentioned that I wasn't documented, and a, a boy, a teenager, you know, he asked me, why should I go to college if it's going to be worthless? because he was undocumented too. And I kind of felt stunned by the question because I thought college was, at that point in time, I thought college was the only way to gain social mobility. Like there was no other way that I could make more money, you know, have a salary um, and be able to help my family and my siblings. Like college was the only way. So I told them that, you know, it's, it's hard, but there are scholarships out there. And I just told them the, I think I told them the advice that someone told me in high school, a librarian, that don't worry about the money, the money will come. You just have to keep, you know, trying if you, if you really want it. Um, I don't think he was, you know, persuaded by my advice. I thought, you know, I think, and I think his point of view is valid. College is hard, especially when you're documented. And it's 2009, 2010. And even though Obama has been elected office, there's been nothing changed for us. Um, we're still undocumented. There's no immigration reform, even though they keep talking about it. But I think the advice for educators, administration, and counselors, because this is a challenging question, right? How can we encourage students to go when things keep changing. Like DACA was just rescinded like in 2017, then it was brought alive again. It's going through the courts. And this is also confusing even to, you know, to someone who is not, doesn't even know how lawsuit proceeds or the, the legal aspects or legal logistical things. But I would just encourage, you know, educators to not discourage students. I think that's the first thing. Don't discourage them. If they want to do this, you know, and they have like the, they have like the ganas or they have the motivation to do so, 
even though they might be like not aware of how challenging it's going to be don't take away that don't take away that um that you know that passion or whatever to keep going encourage that even when they themselves might be discouraged um definitely use um definitely give them correct information because I think sometimes like my high school counselor who I talked to, he was explained, like when I asked him for advice, he instead talked about his undocumented journey because he had arrived to this country like in the eighties or the seventies or whatever. So he was able to adjust status, but his experience was going to be totally different from mine because he came at an earlier time. And he didn't really give me any advice, but his story just made me more like discouraged or depressed, thinking this wasn't going to change. Um, so, you know, don't take the focus on yourself, focus on the student. Um, and the last thing, like, there are ways to pay for school. And I think definitely helping the student find those ways, whether it's scholarships or now the MAP grants have, that have opened up, or even the student fundraising on their own. Um, just support those efforts and remember that whenever you support like this one student, you know, more students might come to you. Or they'll see you as, you know, a, just someone who can help guide the way, even though you don't know, like, you know, you might know how to get from high school to a community college or high school to um, a university. If you're, you're helping them just in the high school context, find other people, I guess, to pass a baton to. Like, if your student's leaving you at the high school and they're now at the community college or NIU, find the people that they are going to need to find so they can keep going in their journey. Thank you. Dulce, advice to educators, administrators, or counselors? Uh, yeah, so I know at NIU we do undocumented ally trainings and we or at the end of the training, um, Sandy, you give the uh, people who participated in it like this sign that says that they're an ally mm -hmm. or I'm not sure what it says. It says, it says something about being an educator and with being and an ally. For, yeah. An yeah. educator with and for undocumented students. Um, and I know not, that not everyone might have access to a training like that, but even having something like that says that you support the undocumented community, you know, uh, I know from experience, I feel like myself and my family in school settings, we've always felt like we look for things in, you know, like teacher's desk or, you know, just something that says, oh, you know, maybe, maybe they're friendly. We can approach them if we have a question, you know, and that's even for people who look like us, you know, if we see a uh, a Latinx counselor will be like, oh, look, we're not alone. Like, we can go to them. I know for me, and this is another thing that I would advise. Um, I had a, a teacher in high school who would um, have, like, a bunch of scholarships that students could apply for, but all of them required um, for you to answer if you were a citizen or, like, a social and so I was excluded from that too. 
And I mean, I never had the guts to go up and be like, oh, you know, do you know of any, any scholarships that don't ask for a social? But just having scholarships that maybe don't ask those questions, you know, because not all students want to come out to their teachers, to their counselors, to administrators. So having scholarships that are open to everyone. Okay. Manny, do you have any advice you want to give to former teachers, yes. educators? Yes, I do. So um, the advice that I would could tell um, anyone for that matter, not just for the educators, administrators, or counselors, um, is to just really just keep an open mind and uh, just attempt to look at the bigger picture. Um, just uh, taking one second to put yourself in someone else's shoes, and in this case, someone like us, like in our shoes, um, you'll be surprised as to how much you'll begin to understand, um, and results so much can come from that. Um, I'm not asking for people to um, inform themselves up to the as much as they can in order for them to be overwhelmed. Um, I like to think that's our job <laughs> in many ways. But um, what I'm asking is more so just for a feeling of understanding, a feeling of uh, sympathy or something in those regards. Because uh, the example that I always like to use, um, a lot of us have to deal with a lot of this on our own. Um, and when I was uh, going ahead and shooting for the transfer process, um, they switched me over to this counselor for uh, like a transfer counselor. And I was so confused because the counselor before that, he did exactly what I'm telling you. And he really did a good job in just meeting me in the middle and uh, assuring that he kind of understood where I was and where I wanted to go. And what happened here was that as soon as this counselor situation switched, that went away, it went out the window. And now this counselor um, still baffles me to this day. Every single time that I met with her, she never looked at me once in the eyes. She would always look at me and she would always be squinting or whatever. And that gave me that in itself, that simple act, it gave me the feeling of that I wasn't um, worthy enough to, for her to even just look at me and more so to help me uh, further my future. So it's just, um, and that's why I say I'm not asking for people to go and do research, do this and do that. The only thing I'm saying is look at me in the eyes and if what you see is there, and I guarantee you it will be, then, you know, then it'll be a different talk that we will be having. So um, um, more so what I'm looking for is just for somebody to uh, lead us in the right directions, whether it's for financial reasons, whether it's for emotional reasons, for whatever reason it may be, um, we can go through it together. It's, I don't want it to be all on us and I don't want it to be all on them either, which is why I'm putting it the way that I am. All I want is for somebody to actually uh, see and feel that the help that we do need, we really do need it. So um, um, any in any way that you can sympathize and come to uh, a middle ground with us, that is all that I ask for anybody, whether it's administrative counselor or anybody out in the real world. Um, and th this could be applied to various things in life as well. So I feel like that is the advice that I would give to them. Okay. Thank you. So, I would like to ask uh, one last question from, from all of you, please. And that would be, what do you account for your academic success of being able to get into college? You've had lots of barriers, roadblocks even, that have been placed in front of you over the years, including the social security number, including people giving you different advice that was maybe not necessarily as 
effective or productive or advantageous as they could, it could have been. So can you talk a little bit in the last few minutes that we have, what do you think made it, allowed you to make it to get to college? And let's start with Laura, please. Okay. Um, so I think the reason I've been able to um, be able to sustain this long journey in higher education. Like I said, I started out at community college in 2009. Um, I graduated my associates in 2012. I spent a few more years at my community college taking paralegal courses and then graduated to or transferred to NIU in 2015. And I'm finally in my last year <laughs> of school um, and getting my JD, but it's been 12 long years. I basically spent the same time I spent in public school now in higher education. And that's not because of that. That has solely everything to do with being a documented and having to figure out how to navigate um, this system, not just, you know, at a community college level and getting a bachelor's degree, but also going to professional school. And I know that I'm in like a very small minority of even undocumented students who go to professional school or graduate school, but it's taken a lot of, I think, determination, some hard-headed determination, because there were people who were discouraging me after I graduated from NIU to go to, go to get my professional school. You know, I even heard it from um, my mom because she was like, are you certain you want to do this? This is more school, like... I think from her perspective, she saw it as, you know, I have to work for three more years. Um, and my sister was also in, um, she was also at NIU and she was just finished getting her bachelor's degree. Um, so I feel like my, I definitely felt that need from my mom to now, after getting my bachelor's degree to, you know, get a job and bring money home. But I knew that if I was going to, you know, get this JD, it would have to be, I would have to do it sooner than later because I wasn't sure if I was going to come back. So a lot, a lot of determination and just, I think, resilience. It takes a lot to, takes an emotional, mental toll on, the, on myself and anyone else who's right now trying to get through school to keep going. Um, I think there's a lot of discouraging things that happen every day, especially now with the Trump administration. Um, I could see myself like if I was in high school right now, I would be discouraged or even unhopeful because of what's going on with, you know, the pandemic and the everything else that's going on in the world. Um, I think there's been more visibility of us, but the, the attacks haven't stopped. And there's some states that are safer, but not all states are as welcoming as this state. Um, so I think it's been, you know, a lot of determination and self-sacrifice, I think, too, and just resilience. But I, I, I know I couldn't have done it by myself. I think I have to, I obviously have, I'm doing this, so I have to carry the weight of what I'm doing. But I've been lucky enough to find people, my people, to help me, you know, get through this, whether it's been encouraging, encouraging words or support or navigating the institution, finding resources, from Sandy, who is now the, um, who heads the Office for Document Support, or just professors who believed in me <laughs> when I didn't believe in myself. So that, that's been, 
you know, it's been a community, I think. It's, it's taken a community <laughs> to get here. And yes, there's been hard work, but I think part of it is also I've been lucky to be where I am lo- location-wise in this country, but perhaps even being close to Chicago, where even though I'm not living there, there are resources that come from there and get to the suburb. I don't know if the experience would have been the same if I was in South, Southern Illinois or even in the Calb or, you know, the cities that are, or the little town cities that are further, you know, out West. Well, thank you, Lara. Thank you. Dulce, what, what made you, what do you feel made you be able to persevere and, and make it to where you are academically? So I like how Laura put it. I think, there's like three main ones. And I, I feel like I always start by saying that I'm thankful to, you know, my support system. I've had friends, um, allies, Sandy even, professors. But I don't think we always take the time to like thank ourselves, you know, because the determination comes from us. The resilience comes from us. Obviously, other people influence us and motivate us, but, you know, we are carrying the weight and we're still going on, Uh, even though sometimes we feel like just really tired and even unhopeful sometimes because it happens. Yeah, I would say my own determination and like, I guess, stubbornness sometimes of just wanting this degree (laughs) and then... I guess just people that I've met along the way. I also went to community college and I met some really, really nice people who it wasn't even their job to like take us see colleges. And they did, you know, they took time out of their uh, weekends and, you know, this person an NIU alumni uh, took us to NIU on a Saturday, I think. And he you know, he got us a panel of students and I connected with people there. And now I'm here and, you know, I've met more great people, great professors. So, yeah, it's, I guess I want to thank the community myself (laughs) and myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dulce. And Manny. Yes, so... um. This kind of connects very nicely with the last question where I said um, it doesn't really take much for um, someone to help. Uh, so for me, what I would hold uh, for account as to where, where I've come to be and where I stand uh, would 100% be close family, uh, friends, uh, and colleagues. And of course, as both Laura and Dulce stated, a very, very driven mentality. It definitely takes something for a person. Um, to have to go through this first of all to accept that we have to and then so on forth from that which is everything else um, the close family friends and colleagues for me um, always helped me figure out um, at whatever stage in my life where it was supposed to go kind of the direction that I was supposed to keep following which is why in the last question I even just said um, if you that counselor would have just looked me in the eyes she probably would have known exactly what to say or uh, uh, just given a, a little bit more insight as to what I was looking for with the questions that I was asking. So um, with um, my friends and family and the people that I surrounded myself with, with them having helped me figure out 
that uh, college was well within my path and my direction that I was going in. Um, after that, it wasn't so hard to prove not only to myself, but to those around me and those that are, were helping me um, that it is possible to make it to college and beyond that to even succeed. Um, so what I hold account is the support system that I built around me because that support system does look at me in the eye and that support system does meet me halfway and that support system does give me a kick in the behind whenever I do need it because we all have places to be and it only takes one look in the eye to see that and to help with that furthermore. So that is definitely what I hold account and that is definitely what I'm going to keep holding account until I make it to uh, the place in my life that I want to be. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, well, that brings us to a close. But before we leave, uh, Sandy, if you can do me a favor mm -hmm. and do the folks in the, the listeners a favor, can you give your contact information, if you mi don't mind? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so absolutely. if they have questions, they know where to turn. Sure. So again, Sandy Lopez, my email is slopez. Lopez one, the number one, S Lopez one at NIU.edu. And you can find an entire website full of resources and my contact information, as well as the student organization contact information at NIU.edu slash undocumented. And so again, NIU.edu slash undocumented. Um, as we close, I want to also state that there are a lot of resources for community members, for schools regarding recent legislation. And finally, um, as educators, I want to make sure that we are honoring our students' um, community cultural wealth. There's a wonderful article, if you haven't read it, I think every educator should read it. It's called Whose Culture Has Capital by Tara Yoso. And it talks about exactly what these students have been talking about today. They didn't know how to get to college, but they were, they had that resilience, they had that determination, they came with aspirational capital from their families and their parents and those they surrounded themselves with. They had linguistical capital, they had, you know, resistance capital. And so it's important that we, we shine a light that all of the assets that they bring to our schools and our spaces and not look at them as only having deficits. And finally, I think I want to say, James, is that now more than ever, it's important for educators to stand up alongside and, and help undocumented students and their families and communities. But it's also important to remember that at the end of the day, you need to have an undocumented person or someone who's directly affected. They're making those decisions because only they know how it's going to affect them. And in the end, this truly affects them who have this, you know, status or who are, who don't have the same opportunity to equity in our educational settings. So please, as you're moving forward and thinking about how you're going to support undocumented students, reach out to undocumented alumni, undocumented community members, or parents, and have student voices in those spaces where you're trying to figure out what is most important for their needs right now. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to Manny and Laura and Dulce for sharing your experiences and your thoughts with us today. Thank you to all of you and have a thank wonderful you, day. Thank you, Yes, thank you, James. Thank it was a pleasure you. to meet you and it was an honor to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs>